0: Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 163. My name is Ariel Ben-Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Aveinu Mankinu, our Father, our King. Lord, we thank you for the season of Hanukkah and the time that it represents. Even though this isn't one of the biblical festivals listed in, in Leviticus 23, it still nevertheless represents a concept and an ideal that is... um uh, in harmony with the the biblical truths, uh, not so much that it points to Messiah like many of the other festivals do, but the, rather it points to God's faithfulness despite our unfaithfulness as a people indeed israel of old has survived over and over again because god made covenant promises to abraham and to his offspring that he would bless him and that he would prosper them and bring them into a good and uh, spacious land and that he has done and so the uh the jewish people have survived because god has deemed it so so thank you lord for saving us and protecting us and bringing us to a place where we need to desperately recognize that you are the only hope and that you are the only truth that we need to seek. Open our blind eyes. I'm speaking as corporate Israel uh, in my prayer open our blinded eyes so that we can see your son messiah yeshua and so that we can embrace him and enter into lasting covenant relationship with you so that we can dwell with you in eternity um and as for those who are grafted into us that would be the gentiles uh thank you for bringing the promises of multiplicity to pass through the uh, inclusion of the Gentiles um, and causing our family to swell, uh, thank you, Lord, for all of these wonderful promises. We'll be careful to give you the praise and glory. Bishimbi Yeshua, oh, Amen. Well, as I'm, uh, as you can tell from my prayer. I'm making this live recording during the week of Hanukkah. The date is December the 4th, 2021 on the USA, USA side of the world um, that I'm making this recording, but by the time it gets uploaded to YouTube, it'll be nearly a week later anyway, But um, and Hanukkah will already have been passed. But I pray that those of you who are listening to this live study and joining me during the live um, Skype class right now, I pray that you have been safe during this Hanukkah season. I know travel takes place. We've missed two weeks in a row for our live study. First week was due to technical difficulties beyond my control, and then the second week due to the Thanksgiving holiday, which uh, lined right up next to Hanukkah. So, Um, that's just the way it works sometimes so um, those of you with me in the live class I pray that uh, you're safe and that you're back home and you're enjoying lighting up those Hanukkah menorahs and spinning dreidel and eating lots of um, potato latkes or (laughs) whatever your family tradition is during Hanukkah let's jump right into the Roman study Um, remember the uh, live internet studies are broken up into two sections a 30-minute section giving given over to a Romans study in a 30-minute section given over to the Trinity study known as uh, uh, exploring the Shema. And so um, I'll do like a little brief announcement between the uh, the two studies. But first, let's just jump right into Romans. We left off in Romans chapter 14, right around the end of the chapter, verses 20 and 21. We're kind of parsing this, uh, uh, you know, um, fleshing it out and seeing what Paul means by everything is indeed clean. So, um... Uh, we will finish Romans this year, I promise you, <laughs> even if it kills me, I'll make sure we finish this long study. It's kind of drawn out by now and I think I've really um, said everything I really need to wanted to say on the matter. Let's read the verses that are relevant to the study, just these two verses. I'll read the Hebrew, I'm sorry, I'll read the English on the left, the Greek on the right, and then we'll jump into my commentary. Um, Romans 14 starting in verse 20 out of the ESV, as you can see on my screen right here, right there uh paul says do not for the sake of food destroy the work of god and then the cryptic phrase that kind of grabs our attention in the 21st century as gentile christians is everything is indeed clean but it's wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats and of course that's going to fuel our um discussion uh because of the disagreement that that statement Causes at face value discussions and uh, dialogues between standard messianics who try to keep the Torah and think that the Torah is still relevant, including keeping a, um, the the dietary laws of Leviticus uh, uh, chapter eleven and thing and Deuteronomy chapter fourteen, versus your average garden variety standard historical Gentile Christian interpretation of this verse in verse twenty, where Paul says everything is de, de-, de- clean. And the interpretation uh, coming to be something to the effect of, "Hey, Paul says all food's clean. We don't have to make a distinction between pork, shellfish, shrimp, lobster, ham, uh, you know, crawdad, uh, um, oyster, whatever, uh, octopus, uh, giraffe." Um, okay, I threw a little. a a trick in there, because giraffe is actually kosher. But uh, you guys get the idea. So that's where the discussion's going. It's a food fight is what's going on. Verse uh, 20, Paul says, It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. So it seems like Paul is trying to do damage control because whatever food preference uh, differences that were causing dissension in his day uh, seem to be present in our day and vice versa. Are they fighting over the same issues? You know, as one group, maybe the Jews in Paul's community saying, hey, you got you Gentiles who are grafted into Israel, <clears throat> you guys need to keep kosher just like we do. And then perhaps maybe the uh, Gentile Christians in Paul's group are saying, no, 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 we don't have to keep kosher because Jesus cleansed all foods in Mark chapter 7. Jesus declared all foods clean, and therefore Paul. Paul, who's a disciple of Jesus is also going to just say that everything's you know nothing is uh, everything's indeed clean right something like that. So that's the level of discussion that we have in our current uh, congregations today. Obviously, if you've never attended a messianic congregation and you're listening to this uh, podcast or watching this YouTube video, your standard Christian answer is going to take the side of the law is done away with. Paul set us free from the law and um, championed in the law of grace or the law of Christ. And so the law of Moses has been relaxed. It's been set aside. It's been fulfilled by Jesus so that we Christians don't have to keep it anymore. Um, and thus Paul can write in earlier in Romans chapter uh, 6, around verse 14 and 15, we're not under the law, but under grace. And so that position is has cemented itself in the minds of standard historic Christianity, and thus passages like this one, verse 20, everything is indeed clean, become um, kind of uh, uh, proof texts to support the position that we don't have to keep kosher anymore. And the reason we don't have to keep kosher anymore is because um, the, Jesus did away with the law um, he demonstrated it, he lived it, uh, Paul did, did way with law, he taught it theologically, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and so uh, that seems to be um, that. But is that really that? Is that really the best way to interpret the passage? Um, we'll find out. Let me read the Greek for you first. We'll over on the uh, right side of the page. Uh the Greek SBLGNT version says Mechen bromatas katalu ta ergan tu theu panta men kathara a kanto anthropo to dia praskamatas estianti. The word for food in their um uh, right there, the, the English word for food is the Greek word um, bromatos. And it's the generic word for food, anything you could put into your mouth. And a key to understanding what is in the mind of Paul when he's writing this verse is to start with the idea that from a Hebraic perspective using Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14 as your guide your average religious Jew of Paul's day would not have considered unclean animals as bromatos in the Greek, as food, something that you could consume at a table setting. That's one of the first clues that should drive our interpretation of the passage. When Paul says, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God, if he's using the standard religious Jewish definition, like religious Jews today use, and first century Jews would have definitely used, then food, bromatos in the Greek, is anything that, that God says is um, derived from a clean animal. Food that's derived from animals that are deemed clean, or um, uh, items that are derived from animals that are deemed clean, can be defined as bromatas or food. Um, from a religious Jewish perspective, this means that Pork products are not even food to begin with. Your religious Jew can hold a piece of pork in his left hand and hold a pencil in his right hand, and neither one of these items are food. Understand what I'm saying here. So, if Paul is indeed using the religious Jewish perspective on bromatos, the Greek word for food, then he's talking about biblically permissible food not being used as a weapon in the Messianic communities to destroy the work of God that God is doing in the communities. He would not be including Pork in this description. And it's within that smaller to larger context that he can come along and say everything is indeed clean. Panta men kathara, right? All is clean, literally in the Greek. The panta, all men is kathara, clean. Or really, the word kathara, as we do our mini Greek study here, it can the Greek word kathara can be used to describe something that is um, innocent, or something that is ritually pure, or something that is um, cleansed of defilement uh, in a ritual manner or a ceremonial manner. But it can also simply refer to something that is a, 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 a not caught up between either good or bad. It's a neutral item. It's, it's innocent and Uh, in regards to its waiting to be labeled by someone or something. It's it's waiting to receive some sort of specificity. So we can imagine we've got food sitting in the middle between the two groups, the Jews on one hand, the Greeks on the other, or the Gentiles on the other hand. And you can imagine that food is sitting there in the middle, right? Bromatos, the Greek word. Food is sitting there waiting to either be labeled by some person as either permissible or prohibited or we can say ritually clean or ritually impure, or we can say defiled or uh, uh, allowable or something like that. So that's really the context uh, that's going to help us better understand uh, what Paul's trying to get at. And yes, it's going to be up to us to figure out, is he talking about just Setting aside all the dietary laws in favor of some sort of, let's all get together, uh, you know, for the sake of God and have peace amongst ourselves and stop fighting and let's just uh, allow everything to be eaten. Is that his perspective? Or is he really saying God set standards and boundaries among, um, righteousness when it comes to community standards at the, at table fellowship? And there are certain foods that are, uh, certain, um, uh, Items that we encounter on an everyday basis that we need not consider food, bromatas, versus there are some items that God says are allowable for food, for consumption, and yet because of idolatry because of pollution from idolatrous worship or some other factor, that food becomes off-limits. It becomes um, koinos. It becomes defiled. It becomes labeled by us as not permissible to eat. Is that the context? I opt for the second uh, explanation. I know people opt for the first one, but um, we'll have to just agree to disagree on some of these issues. So let me keep reading the the rest of the Greek. Verse uh, 21, Paul says... Kalanta me fagain krea meda meda in ho ha su and then when brackets we have a variant uh, from some other manuscript families that says a scandalizetai a asthene end of brackets end of uh, the Greek. All right, enough of the technicalities. Let's scroll down through some of the notes. We've been gone for a few weeks. I'm not going to reread some of these. You can go back and listen to episode number 162 on my website uh, or on my YouTube channel to catch where we left off. Instead, I'm going to jump all the way down to uh, the first paragraph that picks up the context where we did leave off. Paul is going to... Um, give his final closing um, thoughts on this matter of the uh, judgmental attitudes that are taking place in this letter, in this part of his um, letter, specifically at chapter 14. And we're going to borrow a quote from the book of Timothy because there's a passage there, or there's a statement in there, that's um, similar to his thoughts in um, Romans about uh, groups judging one another based on... uh, uh, the preferences and, and and interpretations of passages and things like that. So here's how I say it in my commentary. Um, again, just to be absolutely clear, I personally maintain that Shoal is not teaching us that the dietary list of Leviticus 11, which is where we find the uh, kosher laws. You know what's what's food and what's not. Um, this list has not been discarded now of course this is a messianic position and it is not the position held by most in standard christianity and thus historic gentile christianity is going to differ with me and say because paul believes that the list in leviticus 11 is no longer relevant for gentile christians he's going to of course come along and tell them all is indeed clean and he's going to use that um, interpretation of the word clean, katharas, he's not going to teach that all things are innocent, like I maintain. He's going to instead believe that all things are clean, meaning everything can be eaten. Ham is no longer restricted, because it's been cleansed by the blood of Messiah, and therefore, if Gentile Christians wish to eat ham and shrimp and lobster and all of these other food things, these other items that are not considered by a religious Jew as bromatas, then um, uh, then hey, it's okay, it's fine, because um, Jesus cleansed all foods, right? Mark chapter 7, uh, verse, I think, 19, if I'm correct from memory. Jesus declared all foods clean, things like that. Well, I don't believe that Paul is um, teaching us this, and uh, I go on to say, in fact, Shaul is actually, uh, in reality, he's really reiterating what his teacher, the Master Messiah, taught him. All is clean, and... The key to understanding all is clean is that all is clean, but all is not food. All is not bromatas. That's the whole point. Meaning, God's list of clean animals which from which we derive clean foods really is clean, or permissible foods to eat. All really is clean and can be used in ceremonial services, can be used for um, food preps and things like that, for, for table fellowship. But from Paul's perspective, we have to remember that there's an Extra definition of items that you might find in your average marketplace that needs to be um, used to clarify the presence of otherwise permissible food, but that which has come into contact either with idolatrous services, worship, or some other way of defilement. Um, maybe it came into contact with a corpse, uh, you know, a piece of bread which is otherwise permissible lands on a dead body. Would you eat that piece of bread? I hope you say no, meaning you have now given an extra definition to that food. You've now labeled that food as koinos, defiled, off-limits. And that's why I say in my commentary, all is indeed clean, that is, until a man comes along and declares it otherwise so in standard practice there's nothing really wrong with declaring one piece of food that would otherwise be permissible but has otherwise become defiled for whatever standard right a piece of bread landing on a corpse is not something you want to eat obviously from our modern 21st century perspective we can determine that uh, bread coming into contact with a dead body would pose a health risk right carry-on or some form of disease that the dead body is carrying could be transferred to the piece of bread other than that it's just gross right why would you want to eat bread that came in contact with a dead body that's just disgusting but from the religious perspective from the ceremonial perspective god would say there's a there's a a ceremonial aspect to this uh bread coming in contact with a dead corpse god's going to say it is defiled religiously or ceremonially or or something that effect. So when we're talking about the infighting that's taking place between Jews and Gentiles in Paul's day, which can sometimes take place in today's circles if we indeed have Messianics and and, uh, traditional Gentiles sometimes sit down at the same table, Paul is going to definitely say we need to iron out our differences because we are both trying to be pleasing to God despite our differences of interpretation on what is permissible and prohibited uh, at the table. I say in my commentary, in the end, it is our petty differences and pride that eventually divide us. Food simply becomes the innocent medium that we fight about. And the reason I've got the word innocent in quotes there is because of that Greek word katharos. All is indeed clean, right? Um, All indeed is katharos. The Greek word katharos can be interpreted as innocent. Innocent, waiting for someone to come along and make a definition. Obviously, God says certain animals are clean, and thus the food derived from them is clean. And then with equal precision, God comes along and says certain animals are unclean, and the products derived from those animals are unclean as well. When God sets a definition, let me tell you, man has no right to change those definitions those definitions are set by God he's the one that created the animals he's the one that has the right to change the definitions if he wants to and as far as I can tell he has not changed his mind by comparison and or contrast we can take any clean animal as humans and we can add an extra adjective definition to it and say that it is either innocent or it's defiled or it's um prohibited for any number of reasons there are any number of um scenarios where a food might be rejected by any individual. Perhaps it's a, an allergen, uh, an allergy that they have to the food. Perhaps it's um, some type of restricted diet that they're on. Perhaps they are um, diabetic and there are certain foods their doctor says you shouldn't eat. Uh, perhaps uh, um, you know, the food fell on the ground and it rolled around in the dirt. Uh, you know, I already gave the example of food coming into contact with gross, a dead body. Um, well, All of those are really similar instances where food is innocent until someone comes along and says, for whatever personal reason, that item is off limits to me personally. The point I'm trying to emphasize is that that should not be a case for us to fight amongst ourselves. Instead, we should simply understand that people have differences in uh, food Preferences and needs amongst themselves, and we need to give those that person their personal space without judging them for uh, turning uh, uh, for for um, turning away a certain piece of food, uh, or for rejecting a food item that's set before them. Whatever their reason is, whatever their personal preference or. Um, uh, um, uh, concept is involving this particular piece of food, um, whether it's religious or, uh, like I said, an allergy reason or medical reason or or um, some dietary, you know, you've got vegetarians and vegans and things like that. Whatever the reason is, we have no right as other humans, as believers, certainly, to judge them. And Paul, I think, is trying to step into that arena. But something that makes it a little more complicated in paul's day was the presence of idolatrous um worships where food was being used and then uh, passed along to people to purchase in the meat markets and things like that but nevertheless the um uh, main uh walkway that i want us to catch here is that we shouldn't use food as a weapon there are much more important things in life than food. Something goes into our body, gets broken down by our digestive system, and and you know the nutrients get absorbed into our body, and then within a few hours or a few days gets passed on out the other end. Right? Recall Mark chapter seven and and um. Uh, Yeshua is declaring all foods clean because it enters into the mouth and goes out to the latrine, that type of example. Um, the whole idea is that um, no matter what's taking place, food itself is not the most important thing in the kingdom of God. And that's really the perspective not only that Yeshua supplies, but it's the, it's what Paul outright states here in this letter. So um, with that uh, instruction, we can read in my commentary, Shaul states that food should not be the point of contention. Plain and simple. Is it important? Yeah. I mean, you, you know, you got to eat to live, um, but it shouldn't be the um, weapon uh, used at our table fellowship. It shouldn't be something that divides us so sharply that we can't fellowship with one another. Um, should be, we should be flexible enough as um, sensible adults, particularly messianic um, brothers and sisters in the Lord and Messiah, Yeshua, that we can come to our senses and realize that Um, food is is not going to make or break our um, place in the kingdom, right? You're not going to get into heaven if you keep kosher and you're not going to get kicked out of heaven if you don't keep kosher is the point I'm trying to make. Um, So, this idea of food not being the point of contention, this, in my opinion, sounds amazingly like Shaul's instructions to Timothy in his first letter. So, this is where we left off two weeks ago. Let's look at this passage from First Timothy. Um, we've got a group of people in this um, passage that are placing dietary restrictions on some people and judging people based on uh, their dietary preferences. Let's read it here. This is David Stern's um, Jewish New Testament uh, version, uh, complete Jewish Bible version, I can tell because of the wording. Um, Starting in verse 1 of 1 Timothy uh, chapter um, 4 out of the CJB, um, it reads, quote, The Spirit expressly states, That in the Ahreit Haimim, which is a Hebrew phrase meaning the last days. That's probably how it's going to show up in your standard English Bibles. That in the last days, the Ahreit Haimim, some people will apostatize from the faith by doing what? By paying attention to deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Right away, right out of the gate, these people are in a bad place. They're in a bad way. Why? Because they have left the faith by turning not just to bad teaching not just to bad theology from bad people but Paul says to Timothy that these people are actually following after demonic teaching paying attention to deceiving spirits and things taught by demons how do demons speak well the normal modus operandi right their mode, usual mode is to speak through things that we do, that we say that we participate in, that activities that we are drawn to that we um, um we as humans uh put together they they speak through our error and then just magnify it, they emphasize it, of course, they do speak through their own uh demonic realm, the occult, and all manner of um you know satanism and other. Witchcraft and you know uh, voodoo and and any other uh, type of um, evil that exists in the world today that's just obviously dark that we we as believers should never even really be um, involved in. But um, Paul's trying to suggest that um, they can pass their uh, 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 teachings off as just um, clever pop psychology um, because. Um, as he's going to say here in verse two, such teachings come from the hypocrisy of liars. So um, the demonic teaching is coming through the mouth of men themselves who are liars and whose consciences have been burned as if with a red hot branding iron. So we can see that this there's there's a very real danger. And just listening to everything that you hear and paying attention to everything you read online or, you know, you go to a seminary and some some clever um, um, golden-mouthed, golden-tongued, you know, uh, 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 I don't know, uh, good-looking fellow is is standing up, you know, uh, sprouting off. What seems like, um, you know, charismatic leader type guy, and he's he's just you know rattling off you know this and that and this and that, and you're thinking, man, that is just that just sounds so good, almost too good to be true. Well, <laughs> you need to fact check him, right? <laughs> you need to go back <laughs> and, and 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 be like the noble Bereans of Paul's day, and uh, make sure that what he's saying is lining up with Scripture. Because if you're not, you just might find yourself listening to the doctrines of devils. All right, let's keep reading. This is the context. This they, these evil men, they do what? They forbid marriage and they require abstinence from foods. This is our tie into Romans 14. They require abstinence from foods which, watch this, God created to be eaten with thanksgiving by those who have come to trust and know the truth. So the context is some sort of like over-emphasized asceticism, right? Forbidding marriage and requiring abstinence from foods. Some form of pseudo religious experience that supposedly is supposed to elevate a human's experience to the point where he can divine all manner of, you know, spiritual mystery if, if he joins this, this super elite of asceticists, um, you know, um, stop you know, abstain from marriage, abstain from foods, etc, etc. And if you do that then supposedly um, you will be in touch with uh, you know the divine message. It sounds a lot like um, Gnosticism really and perhaps this is a hint at the pseudo-Gnostic um, form of the gospel that was creeping into um, Messianic communities in the first century uh, something that was definitely a, a, real, a very real and present danger to the first century churches. Um, Gnosticism this idea of a secret, hidden knowledge—that's where the word gnostic is rooted—in this knowledge, gnosis, in the Greek, uh, of that a body of truth that can only be um, attained to if you um, do. X, Y, Z. When it comes to a certain lifestyle, right? You know, um, park yourself in a Lotus position for thirty days and starve yourself, and and, and you know, shut off your mind and only allow the, the 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 elders to teach you, the masters, right? The the voices in your head, allow them to, to bring clarity to thought and blah, blah, blah. sounds a lot like a modern uh, Buddhism and, and Eastern religions and the positions that they teach. You know, you need to clear your mind and let, let, let the spirit wash over you and, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. Well, that's a dangerous thing to do, right? You don't want to do that. Um, uh, these evil men, these apostates, were forbidding marriage and requiring uh, abstinence from certain foods that Paul says God created to be eaten with thanksgiving by those who have come to know the truth. And then from that verse, he gives these um, instructions in verse 4, for everything created by God is good and nothing received with thanksgiving needs to be rejected. Uh Aha, there we have it. Traditional Christianity would say, everything created by God is good nothing would receive with thanksgiving needs to be rejected and thus hey pork was uh, created by god pigs were created by god shrimp was created by god lobsters were created by god uh you know oysters were created by god uh why should we reject them since they're created by god and uh that means they're good and as long as we receive and say the blessing over this particular uh item you know over this ham sandwich if we're receiving it with thanksgiving from god why should we reject it Understand the the um, leap in uh, uh, logic uh, from what Paul's really talking about to our modern, our historic and modern applications of this passage, Um, and then in verse five he says uh, the reason why we don't need to reject it is because the word of god and prayer make it holy aha the word of god and prayer make it holy not just prayer by itself and that's of course first timothy 4 1 through 5 cjb now um right away those of you who are messianic can start to see where um the idea of us receiving any type of food is really illogical anything that we moderns would call food because if the word of god forbids it then Prayer is not going to allow it, but remember, Paul actually says in in Timothy, "there everything created by God is good." If we broaden our understanding of this passage to not just include food, but to include any other concept that we might encounter in our messianic communities, for instance, like say marriage, well, then obviously even though marriage was created by God and instituted by God, right? God created male and female and joined the two together um, in the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve. And that becomes our, our blueprint and model for marriage using this as the example for everything. Then yes, everything created by God is good. Marriage is created by God and nothing received with Thanksgiving needs to be rejected. So if a man and a woman come together, well, then that's a good thing. And we don't need to reject that. We can receive that marriage with Thanksgiving and it doesn't need to be rejected. However, however, what if a man and a man come together? What if a woman and a woman come together? What if a man and a minor comes together? A woman and a minor, or, oh, God forbid, what if a man and an animal come together? All right, you guys see the, you know where I'm going with this. Should we receive that union with thanksgiving without rejecting it? Right? You understand the hole in my logic now? Suddenly, just because it's created by God... And just because we pray over it, and because because we think it makes it holy, and we receive it with thanksgiving, that doesn't make it acceptable. And the Word of God certainly doesn't sanction it. So we can't use this passage as a carte blanche, just like um, a blank check that we can fill in the blank with whatever we think is acceptable and we think we we can give thanksgiving to and that we think it's okay. And because we've said a prayer over it in Jesus' name, that doesn't suddenly make it holy. So that's really the context of um, what we're talking about. Um, And I've got one paragraph left in this particular uh, uh, verse or in this particular section, but I want to stop right there um, for tonight. We'll pick this up next week, and I'll finish this paragraph next week, and then um, this will park us in uh, the final um, question, uh, which is verse 22 and 23. How do we keep the faith we have between ourselves and God? We'll look at that particular topic um, either next week or the week after that after we bring a um, a conclusion to this idea of, is everything really clean? Uh, You know, our foods, all foods... To be accepted with thanksgiving and prayer? Um, can we just say a prayer over it and everything's okay? Uh, does the word of God and prayer really sanctify everything that we might, um, receive with thanksgiving to include food? That's the question we'll put on the table, pun intended, next week. But that'll do it right now for exploring the Shema. I'm sorry for, uh, that'll do it right now for Romans 14 unplugged, feast and fast and food. Oh. My, these are the live internet studies. My name is Elbin Lyman Hanavi. I'm a tour teacher at Congregation uh, K Tnuvaah The Harvest in Thornton, Colorado. Let me just let you know real quick that you're listening to these live internet studies either via uh, iTunes podcast or um, YouTube channel. Um, you can find us online uh, as far as the Harvest at GraftedIn.com. We'd love to have you join us in live or in person, or if not, at least. Uh, catch our YouTube sermons that are recorded each week live and uploaded to our YouTube channel. That would be a, be a great way to join us as a community. I've got my own website at tetzetorah.com as well. t-e-t-z-e-t-o-r-a-h.com. Love to have you join me at my own personal Torah teaching website for any of the commentaries that I park there. See any of the links that you're seeing on your website or on your uh, screen right now. And as I mentioned earlier, I also have my own um, uh, YouTube channel. You can find me online at youtube.com forward slash C for the word channel forward slash Tetzai Torah Ministries. Make sure you subscribe, hit the bell for notifications, leave a thumbs up for the things that you like, leave comments for the questions that you have, and then hit the little share button to share all the information with all of your friends and family in your social media circles, okay? Live Internet Studies is brought to you week after week. Every week we join live for these studies. This is episode number 153. Meeting date uh, for this study is December 4th, 2021 USA uh, date. This is the meeting for Saturday late afternoon from 5 p.m. to approximately 6 p.m. Sometimes we get a little, go a little over uh, just because I'm long-winded. The uh, hour-long study is broken up into two 30-minute segments. Romans 14 Unplugged, which we just went through. Feast and Fast and Voodoo mai. Uh, we just looked at part 79. And then the uh, thirty other 30-minute 30 segment, Exploring the Shema, Discussions on the Issues of Trinity, Paper 3, Who or What is the Holy Spirit, part 95, which we're gonna ter- going to turn to shortly. And then um, we will watch a um, YouTube video um, later on in the study uh, entitled, Why Was Circumcision So Important to the Jews? And then one last um, uh, push or plug real quick. If you find these studies helpful relevant and a blessing to you and you'd like to um, contribute to the ongoing um, uh, ministry that I have here in, in uh, on, on, on the internet uh, you'd like to bless me with your financial gift or uh, you know contribution donation or if the, even if you consider uh, this a tithe uh, that's up to this between you and God this is the mechanism that you can use to bless me scroll to the very bottom of my website to the black footer section where you can see some Hebrew writing, click on the little yellow donate button and you're able to securely donate to my ministry via um uh, a credit card or PayPal or something like that and it's it is secure so you don't have to worry about that despite what it says uh, someone once pointed out hey up in your uh, address bar it says not secure that's actually just my website that's not an HTTPS uh, but if you click on the yellow donate button it'll take you to a PayPal page where you can input a credit card or um, or uh, if you have funds in your own PayPal account and that is obviously a secure uh, level of donation. you know, 120 bit, 128 bit encryption, and all that other stuff. So you don't have to worry about that. But um, I'm certainly uh, in a position where I could use the help, uh, since I'm still out here in South Korea looking for a job. Um, but uh, I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Let's turn to exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity and pick up the study where we left off two weeks ago. Take the next 30 minutes to look at this. Romans chapter 8 verses 9 through 11 is a concentrated passage where Paul is talking about the Spirit of God. In this particular part of our study, we're focusing on the overlap of information that the Bible provides for us in describing God's Spirit. And what we're going to end up with if we read the Bible from cover to cover and not cherry pick, if we allow the whole Bible to speak for itself, we'll notice that God's Spirit is described using language that attributes the Spirit to God Himself, meaning God the Father, and yet there are times and places in the Bible where the Spirit, and we're going to find out this tonight right here, where the Spirit is equated and related to the Son of God. And then there are other times, of course, in the Apostolic Scriptures, where the term Holy Spirit is interpreted to mean a third person of the Godhead, the third person of the Trinity, or a separate um, aspect of God, not a separate being, not a separate entity. Um, I mean, it's kind of hard to articulate the trinity with, without describing uh, three gods or or one god who wears three masks, right? We're avoiding modalism on one hand, that's a ditch of error and heresy that we want to avoid, and we're avoiding tritheism on the other hand, right? That's a ditch and error that we want to avoid as well. I'll put a little graphic on the screen of ditches that we want to avoid, like a kind of a bowling ball motif uh, picture that you're, you know, when you're bowling, you want to roll your bowl right down the middle and avoid what? The gutters on the left and the right. Well, modalism on one side is one gutter and tritheism on the other side is another gutter you don't want your ball to fall into either one of those two ditches of error as you're bowling your rolling bowling your ball down the center lane you want to hit a strike and when we're talking about um, Trinity and uh, the Godhead and understanding this triune nature that we serve we don't want to avoid the error of modalism and the error of um, tritheism all right so here in Romans, let's just read the passage first, and then we'll go back and exegete it. Paul says, and this is ESV for us, quote, verse 9, You, however, and he's speaking to believers, by the way, that's the context. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. We're actually going to go back and read the full um, set leading up to this. We may just only spend all of our time on Romans uh, chapter 8, verse uh, this section right now. We may not even get to another uh, verse, which I'm fine with if we take the whole 30 minutes looking at this. He says to these believers, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Right? He's talking to believers. And, of course, this fact that they're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, is only true if, Paul says, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. So the first indicator, or um, the first uh, description of God's Spirit, is that it's the Spirit of God. Notice that. Notice very carefully. If the Spirit of God is dwelling in you so the spirit of god is inside of a believer right remember this is a section on who or what spirit is indwelling us as believers is it the spirit of god is it the spirit of messiah or is it the Spirit of the Holy One, or the Holy Spirit? Is it the Spirit of the Holy, I like to jokingly say. All right, which Spirit? Is, or is it all three, right? Are we to imagine that there are three Spirits inside of us? This kind of sounds kind of spooky, right? <laughs> or even a fourth one, because Ariel Spirit still lives in there as well. He doesn't get displaced by God's Spirit. But no, that's really not the way. I mean, that's an obvious um, answer. That's really not the way we're, we're, we're to interpret it. But Paul says, the Spirit of God dwells in you, If you are a believer, if you are in the spirit and not in the flesh. And then with the same breath, in the same writing, without skipping a beat, he says, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Well, This is a little strange. Paul, you just used the phrase spirit of God. Why would you now introduce something known as the spirit of Christ as if it is a separate spirit? I mean, it sounds odd. In fact, to further the confusion, in verse 10 he says, but if Christ is in you, wait a minute, didn't you say in verse 9 that it's God that dwells in us? Notice how Paul is interweaving the complex nature of God living in a believer. How does this take place? Via the Spirit. But notice that we have suddenly certain elements that Trinitarians are fond of highlighting. We have God, and we have God's Spirit. We have Messiah, and we have Messiah's Spirit. And we have the Believer. So picture this in your mind. I'll try and either create a graphic in post-production, or I'll find something online if not just use your make believe right use your imagination you have a believer sitting here in the middle of a room and above the believer off to one side we have the concept of god right we have god this invisible invisible being off to one side and coming down from this invisible being is what we would identify as the spirit of God coming to dwell in this person sitting in this middle of the, in the middle of the room, the believer. That's the picture I want you to have in your mind. God is off to one side, and His spirit is being um, is coming to dwell inside of this person. And yet, using verses, um, using what Paul says in the same verse, and carrying over into verse ten, right nine and ten together, we also have Christ off to the other side. Christ is definitely not God in this description. Christ is another element to this picture that I'm describing who's off to the other side, above the believer, but off to the other side, and is not overlapped with God, but is in some way separate and distinct from God, who's on one side. Christ is on the other side, and yet, Paul says, this spirit comes from Christ, to dwell in the same believers in the middle of the room so that's the picture being painted verse by verse 9 and 10 you're not in the flesh but in the spirit if in fact the spirit of god dwells in you anyone who does not have the spirit of christ does not belong to him but if christ is in you so this is what we have to contend with paul could have easily written anyone in fact if the spirit of god dwells in you in you anyone who does not does not have the spirit of god does not belong to him but if god is in you right theologically that makes sense there's nothing nothing that any trinitarian would object to and i might add there's nothing that any unitarian would object to uh Right or strict monotheism, monotheist, right? You know, oneness, Pentecostals, Iglesia de Cristo, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, um, Christadelphians, uh, Worldwide Church of God, on all these other um, groups that are non-Trinitarian of course um traditional judaism would fall into that camp as well but they're not even christian but the point being is if paul's talking about the spirit of god dwelling in you and then he says if you don't have the spirit of god then you don't belong to god and but if god is in you etc etc all of that is theologically acceptable all of that lines up perfectly with what the tanakh teaches us about what we know about one god and the one spirit But hello, that's not what Paul wrote. Paul was inspired by the Spirit to pin the terms Spirit of God and Spirit of Christ and move seamlessly from verse 9, where it's the Spirit of God dwelling in us, to verse 10, where it is Christ who is in us. See what I'm saying? And all of this still doesn't negate the fact that it's the spirit in us because look at this let's pick let's continue reading in verse 10 but if christ is in you not god but christ is in you right as if there's two in there but really it's just one but it's one and yet two right remember it's one what and three who's if christ is in you although the body is dead because of sin the spirit is life because of righteousness and then in verse 11 he gets really funky look at verse 11 you guys are okay if i use the word funky there look at verse 11 if the spirit of who of him who raised jesus from the dead dwells in you notice the equivocation notice the slight ambiguity let's pause and ask yourself a question. Who raised Jesus from the dead? well, in its most normative application, it is God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. Let me pull a quote now from um from uh uh let's see this is uh pastor um uh gosh, I'm drawing a blank here desiring God you guys can see his picture right there uh john oh, Good, good grief! Uh, John Piper. There we go. Sorry, it's right, it's right there on the page. Okay, so John Piper, great um, evangelical preacher of twenty-first of today's standards. He's still living. Uh, he has this article entitled "Jesus Raised from the Dead" that he put out a few years back. And um, let me blow that up. And just look at these first um, these first two uh, paragraphs. I don't need to read the whole article, but look at uh, this paragraph first. He says, "When Jesus was on Earth." He raised four people from the dead. This is a uh, um, pastor Piper. The four people that Jesus raised from the dead: He raised one, the widow's son in the village of Nain, in Luke. Number two, he raised the twelve-year-old daughter of Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, in Mark. Number three, he raised Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, in Bethany, after he'd been dead for four days, in the book of John. And then the fourth person that Jesus raised—you ready for it? He raised himself from the dead after he'd been crucified. Yeah, he raised himself. Look at this uh, paragraph right here. Uh, Pastor Piper reminds us, it's true that the New Testament teaches that God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. Reference Paul all over again. Romans chapter 6 and Acts chapter 2. So let me pause and agree with uh, Pastor Piper for a moment. The normative way... To understand the the, uh, answer to the question, who raised Jesus from the dead, is to answer, God, the Father, raised Jesus, the human, from the dead. And that's the normative way to interact with the resurrection, because God is the one who's um, given the credit over and over again during Yeshua's ministry as the one who's um, leading the program. He's orchestrating all of Yeshua's actions, right, over and over again, Yeshua um, refers back to the Father as the one whose will that he's following, the one who's, whom he's obedient to, the one whose um, um, word that he's upholding, etc., etc. Uh, the one whose kingdom he's come to proclaim, whose name he's came to pro- come to, to honor and proclaim and to, to lift up and to exalt among humans. While on earth, Jesus primarily... Spoke and interacted with humans as a human, and that's why most of what he does as a human is to be interpreted from the human being perspective. Son of man, which means, which is a, a human, a, um, a, a a phrase that simply means human being, Ben Adam in the Hebrew, uh, son of man. So, um, this concept of God the father who is god right he is the being of god raising the human being known as jesus from the dead uh, is the most natural and normative way to read through your bible from start to finish particularly the parts that deal with uh the apostolic scriptures the new testament however however as doc, as uh, I almost said Dr. Piper, I think he does have a doctorate, but uh, or an MDiv at least, but we'll just call him Pastor Piper for now. What Pastor Piper also highlights is that it's also true that Jesus himself was acting to bring about his own resurrection. Notice the cooperation that uh, we're going to see here. And we know this, Piper says, because Jesus himself said in John 10, 18, quote, Speaking of his own life, listen to this. No one takes it from me. Of course, this would be a reference to humans. No one can kill me, even though we know the Romans put him to death, even though though we know that the religious Jews uh, said crucify him, even though we know that it was the... um, um, you know the the religious party in Israel that day, and uh, the you know the political agenda, and the the sham trial that hung him on the tree, that hung him up on the cross. Even though we also ultimately know that it was our sins that hung him up there to die, all of that is true. And yet, if we look at this, Yeshua says, "No one takes my life from me," which means Yeshua has this power and authority. This is like we're going to read to lay his own life down. Now, what does this have to do with Trinity? I'm I'm getting there. Okay, what does this have to do with who's dwelling in us? What does this have to do with Paul's spirit passage in Romans chapter and le- uh, Romans chapter 8? Stick with me. Hang on. Just follow along with me, okay? Yeshua says, no one, speaking of his life, no one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I lay it down of my own accord. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to what? Take it up again. So if we were just to stop right there, and let, instead of reading the final clause, then we would be forced to come to the conclusion that no one, including God the Father, can kill Yeshua, and no one, even including God the Father, can raise him up. But Yeshua adds this cryptic final clause, This charge I have received from my father, so the Unitarian can step in and say, "Aha! Here it is. Jesus didn't really have the power to do it on in and of himself. Rather, God conferred this power and authority and charge to Yeshua as a man, and therefore, when Yeshua uh, laid his life on the cross, it was another, it was a charge that his father gave him, and thus likely." Uh, likewise, when Yeshua raised himself from the dead, it wasn't really the authority and power of Yeshua in and of himself. It was actually God the Father who gave this power and authority and charge to Yeshua, and thus um, it's really it all points back to God again. And you know what? I actually fully agree with that line of reasoning from a Unitarian perspective. That's actually uh, accurate. However, however, because Yeshua can and does. Um, things that often equate him with uh, the authority and power of god here on earth then because of that overlap right um one of these days i'll I'll, uh, we'll we'll catch this we're not going to do it tonight obviously but there are places where yeshua walks and talks and demonstrates miracles and actions and things that from a biblical perspective this is something that only God has been attributed to doing, such as creative powers, um, you know raising people from the dead, calming the storm, walking on water, um, uh, forgiving men of their sins, certain miracles and attributes that Yeshua demonstrates that the onlooker of Yeshua's day should come to the conclusion that this is no mere mortal, that this is not just a man who's been conferred authority and a charge from God, but rather this man speaks with the very power of God and does things that give us the impression that he's very God among us, that theophany is taking place. You have to remember the context. This is something I think that many Unitarians don't often stop and ponder. And so it's to their discredit. All of the theophanies of the Old Testament were not meant to give humans the impression that they're interacting with an agent of God at the time. So you have the angel of the Lord showing up. You have the malachadonai that's the angel of the Lord. You have the captain of heaven's armies uh, dialoguing with you. You have the burning bush in front of you. You have the pillar of cloud moving before you, right? The sea splitting open and things like that if you're the children of Israel. You have the flaming sword, right? You have all of these theophanies in the Old Testament. When they were taking place, the average Israelite was not supposed to come to the illogical conclusion that this is merely an agent of God or merely a theophany. Instead, the proper way to um, understand what was taking place in front of them over and over again was that they were interacting with very God albeit on a miraculous level. Indeed, often whenever a theophany took place, the individual, the human being, would uh, remark to themselves or out loud or to the other humans that were around them, we're all going to die. Why? Because we have seen God. The understanding was that no human can see God and live through the experience and live to tell about it. So often when an angelic being would show up, instead of just thinking that they're seeing an angel, they would think, Oh, no, I'm doomed. I'm seeing God. I'm looking at God, which means these are my final moments, right? This is going to be my last breath because I'm looking at God, and the next thing that's going to happen is that I'm going to be laid to rest. I'm, I'm dead. I'm dead. Remember Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, right? Uh, in the year King Uzziah died, um, he was carried up, swept up into this vision where he was saw the, the temple of God and the the robe of God flowing from the throne where, the, 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 where God was sitting, right? And the, the glory of God was filling the temple. And what does he say? He doesn't say, you know, praise be to God that I'm looking at you and dialoguing with you. Instead, what does he say? Woe is. Me, because I am a man with unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the glorious God, right? I'm paraphrasing, but I'm looking at God, and I'm an unclean man. Woe is me, which in the Hebrew is oy, oy, right? Oy ve, oy, whoa, oy. I'm dead. I'm a dead man. Why would he say that? Because he's looking at God. He didn't think, oh, you know, everything's going to be okay. I'm looking at an agent of God. I'm not looking at God. I'm looking at an agent of God. Now, why do I bring up this example? because often in dialogue with Unitarians and those who don't believe that Jesus is very God-veiled in flesh, they'll relegate Jesus to an agent of God. A human who's been exalted by God with supernatural powers, right? He's been divinized, or he's been, um, you know, he's been given a secret, uh, a secret soldier, super, super soldier serum from God, and he's got superpowers, right? He's he's an X Man, he's a he's a Superman, um, he's a he's a meta human, he's an Avenger, he's a you know he's a whatever Marvel superhero, whatever or DC comic superhero you want to fill in the blank. Jesus is not really God, but he's got all these superpowers like God, and therefore he can do all of the one. Wonderful miracles that God does not because he's God but because he's got superpowers from God that's the unitarian interpretation of who jesus is he's a he's a divinized human he's a um a glorified man but he's not god and that's why of course he can resurrect himself that's the answer from a unitarian perspective is because jesus isn't god but instead he's got superpowers that god gave him and that seems to go in line with what jesus says here where he says um this charge just fill in the word fill in the blank there for this superpower i've received from my father okay but and, and let me finish the quote from john piper here uh, god the father gave jesus the authority to take up his life again from the grave where his body lay dead okay so all of that is true all of that is true however going back over to um uh sorry lost my place here going back over to what paul writes in romans chapter 8 it's not as cut and dry as the unitarian perspective might lead us to believe and so we're drawing this part of my study to a close and we'll pick this up next week because paul describes our relationship to god and to to yeshua and to the spirit as dwelling within us as believers how can god come to dwell within us via his spirit how can jesus come to dwell within us via his spirit how can the spirit come to dwell within us Well, because he's a spirit. And so in verse 11, Paul says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Well, naturally, we can interpret this to be God the Father is the one who raised Jesus from the dead, and thus God the Father dwells in us. And indeed, he says in the next sentence, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This would all seem to make Perfect 100% crystal clarity sense if we're talking about God is the one who raised Jesus from the dead, who dwells in us. God who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to our mortal bodies through God's Spirit who dwells in us. We swap out the pronouns for the um, personal noun of God. And this makes 100% sense from a Unitarian perspective, and there is um, agreement on the Trinitarian side of the house. None of this is in disagreement when we're talking with Trini- Trinitarians. However, in closing, let's, so let's insert um, Yeshua's name, the Messiah's name, the Word made flesh, the eternal Word who dwells, who dwelled, dwelt with God and as God, uh, reference uh, John 1, 1 through 1-3. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, which is Jesus himself, if the spirit of Messiah, who raised Jesus from the dead, dwells in you, then Messiah who raised Messiah from the dead, right, because he raised himself, then Messiah who raised himself from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through Messiah's spirit who dwells in you. The Trinitarians. Equally have zero problem interpreting Romans 8.11 the way I just described it, the way I supplied the extra um, pronouns and, and proper nouns to swap out instead of God dwelling in us and raising Jesus from the dead, but Messiah himself doing the raising from the dead and dwelling within us trinitarians have no problem reading the passage that way why because we understand the nature of the 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 complex nature of god being a spirit who can come to dwell in us via his son and yet we call it the holy spirit we call that that indwelling the holy spirit and yet it's the unitarians would have a problem with that but wait a minute wait a minute paul is the one himself let's close and come full circle paul himself is the one that supplied That that seemingly ambiguity, right? That that equivocation, that that macru, in the previous two verses, the spirit of God dwells in you. The spirit of Christ is in you. See how that works? So don't fault me as a Trinitarian for inserting Yeshua the Messiah's um uh. Ent, uh, uh, identity in verse 11 because it's Paul who gives me the authority to insert that because Paul says it's Messiah who dwells in us and it's the it's the, the, uh, the spirit of Messiah who's dwelling in us and yet it's the spirit of God. And so that's going to do it for this look at Romans chapter 8, uh, these particular verses 8, verses eight, 8, 9, 10, 11 or verses 9, 10, 11. We'll continue looking at this as weeks go on Um, I was going to read the uh, whole passage. I had it all pulled up here in context, Uh, but I, I think you guys get the idea. That'll do it for Exploring the Shema, discussions on the issues of Trinity. Let's begin to wind down and look at our liturgy for tonight. The liturgy is taken from uh, Genesis chapter 12. Uh, We read the English two weeks ago, but go back and listen to study number 162 for that. I'm not going to read the uh, English tonight. I'm only going to read the Hebrew. And then for the Apostolic Scriptures New Testament reference, I'm only going to read the uh, Greek. So Genesis chapter 12, this is Abraham being told by God to get up and get out from his country and to go to a place where God is directing him to go and to bring this promise to abraham god is going to bless abraham and ultimately we see that this blessing is going to culminate not just in the bringing of yeshua into the world as our messiah but also in the bringing of the gentiles into the family of abraham so that we can um come full circle with these particular promises so, uh, as I'm reading the Hebrew over on the right side of the page, you can reference the English to see what it says. The Hebrew of verse 1 says, Verse Two right there, the That's an interesting uh, phrase there. A great goy, <laughs> a goy gadol. I make give you a great nation, but literally a great goy, a great gentile, right? The And then the uh, final verse, verse three of the final pasuk, as we say in Hebrew. There's too many chas in there. That's why I'm getting tripped up. Yeah, you try reading that five times fast. All right. So that'll do it for our Hebrew uh, reading. Let's turn over to the Greek. Uh, this will be a little bit longer. It's actually Galatians chapter 3. Um I was going to read verse 1 through verse 8, but I think I'll jump all the way down to, uh, let me see... I think I'll just read verse 6, 7 and 8 for uh, for brevity's sake. Uh uh since we're running out of time here in our live study. So let's start right there on the right side of the page. This is the Greek, uh SBLGNT version of the Greek. Uh you know, starting out with this concept just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, our quote from Genesis 15:6. Uh the Greek says kathos Abraham epistusin to theo kai elagiste auto eis de kaiosune." no uh, chas like the hebrew right less easy for me to trip up verse 7 says and then uh verse 8 is the verse that actually links it to um links this liturgy section to the genesis passage where god told him um i'll bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you and in you all the nations of the world shall be blessed um we're going to see that phrase borrowed from paul right here verse 8 the greek says produce de he hati ek de kai oi ta ethne ha theos pra you in to abraham mm-hmm. hati en you la gay yeah, why? I think it was at six or seven syllables, en soy panta ta ethne. Yeah, even Greek still trips me up from time to time. I'm no expert here, but oh, one day I'd love to be able to just read Hebrew and Greek the way I read English. Uh, if I ever get to that point where I can read uh, all three languages equally uh, with precision and, and without tripping myself up, um, I will actually record myself reading all of the Torah and all of the, the Apostolic the whole Bible in, in the original languages, and post that on the internet for anyone else to reference so that they can practice their own languages as well. But I'm not there yet. I'm still working on it. So, uh, forgive me. And that'll do it for our liturgy for tonight. Let's watch the short little video, uh, on, um, why was circumcision so important to the Jews? And after we're done with the video, we'll simply dismiss in prayer. You ready? Here we go. Short questions, short answers by Torah teacher Ariel and E-Bible. Yeah, I'm the author. All right, let's read the question. Question says, why was circumcision so important to the Jews? All right, let's find out. God commanded Abraham to be circumcised. That's the short answer. God also commanded 8 the old baby boys to be circumcised, right? It's a baby boy. How cute. Alright, circumcision was a command of God, so the Jews rightly took it seriously as they do with all of God's commandments. In other words, we Jews do not believe that the law has come to an end. In Messiah, you've heard that popular teaching. Circumcision was a hot topic in the first century of Israel. By Paul's day, it had lost its simple surgical meaning and it had taken on a sociological meaning. What do I mean by that? Instead of being a sign of the Abrahamic covenant, like read in Genesis 17 and in Leviticus 12, it had become code word for conversion to Judaism. So it was being misused by the Judaism's of Paul's day to seal the deal for Gentile proselytes who were wishing to be counted as legally recognized Jews in the Jewish community. And this upset Paul because the Torah prescribed no such proselyte ceremony. It's an entirely man-made rubric and it's an unnecessary one at that. Alright, so here's what covenant Israel really looks like. You guys have seen this slide before. It's covenant Gentiles plus covenant Jews. Paul taught that believing Gentiles and Jews were both genuine covenant members and both were covenant bound to follow Torah, including circumcision. He really had nothing bad to say about that. Paul only dissuaded circumcision in Galatians due to his Jew, due to Jewish misuse of this God-given sign. All right, let's look at the longer answer. Why did God have Abraham remove the foreskin in the first place? Why the male sex organ? You guys ever stop and think about that? Why that place? Um, Tim Haig is fond of noting that the. Um, Abraham and Sarah had an absence of children and and their age you know they were getting up there in age and so this is really the complication and so um, basically what Tim is uh, trying to point out is that circumcision upon the 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 on the the male uh, sex organ right there actually has to be interpreted within the narrative flow of Genesis As far as, in other words, does this answer the the, the problem that was created by their age and their absence of children, or does this complicate things even further? All right, let's keep going. The promise would come not by the strength of the flesh, which the Hagar plan represented, but rather by above human means. Okay. Abraham did not hesitate to circumcise both himself as well as the males of his household. Looking forward at its effect in the biblical narratives, we learn that it was to become a unique, Marker, outwardly identifying those males of the offspring of Abraham as inheritors of the magnificent promises that God was making with this particular man. So Abraham became the first in a series of covenant members who would carry an outward sign that would uh, identify him in a unique place among God's faithful. And that's what we're really about. It did not, nor does it now serve to secure the promises that God gave to him through personal effort. What is more, the sign of circumcision was to be an indicator that all subsequent male covenant participants were adopting the same faith that Abraham possessed. You guys understand that? Alright. So, look at this again. Obviously, it was incumbent upon the faithful father to pass this sign on to his son because eight-day-old baby boys do not circumcise themselves. So something that parents give to their children. The promises were of faith. You can read Romans chapter 4 carefully. And to be 100% sure, the Torah says that the promises were given to him before he was circumcised. Read that in Romans 4 10 and 11. Before he was circumcised, he was counted as righteous. So he looked up at the stars and God promised that his seed would be as numerous as the stars in Genesis 15 5 and 6. Abraham was credited with being righteous because he believed the unbelievable. So with this foundational Genesis is teaching in our arsenal right about him being credited as righteous and and uh receiving circumcision i'm sorry receiving the the um status of righteous before he was circumcised we're now poised to turn our attention directly to paul's continuing application of circumcision in the life of a first century covenant member be he jewish or gentile Right? It makes sense we can now better understand Paul if we actually first go back and better understand Abraham's interaction with God. Paul does not indicate in Galatians that circumcision was being relaxed now that the prophesied Messiah has come and gone. And this is a challenge to traditional Christianity who likes to imagine that uh, Messiah's coming and going has spelled an end to the torah to include physical circumcision Well, paul does teach and this is very careful that we make this proper distinction when we're reading through the book of galatians per se what paul teaches is that circumcision must be properly understood and applied on a community level if each torah true covenant member was to remain in right standing with god so we had a misuse of the sign and paul's instructions regarding that Surely, the Galatian Jews and Gentiles that we're talking about here in our discussion were entertaining notions of implementing community circumcision based on their their understanding or their misunderstanding of the social benefits that provided as a people group of God. And that was particularly from the majority to the minority from the Jews who are the blue people in my little picture there to the Gentiles who are the little red guy standing on the other side of that separation wall. And we talked about that wall in a different topic, in a different study. However, given the views we have just examined we in the 21st century Christian communities have no reason now to continue misunderstanding and misapplying this important covenant sign as well really there's no excuse since we've got the the Torah and we've got Paul's writings there's no reason for us to misunderstand catch my podcasts which are available on iTunes you can google search me under the term Ariel Hanavi in the iTunes store and of course my YouTube channel where I park a lot of uh, my teachings as well uh, is available for you all I encourage you to subscribe to my YouTube channel because I upload new content weekly in fact I upload content almost daily. Okay. All right. And that'll do it for the video for tonight. Let's dismiss in prayer. I bless your name. And I'm so thankful to uh, be back in the uh seat again sitting behind the microphone where i can share my thoughts with the students after a two-week break we thank you for uh the the needed vacation the needed um break from the normal routine so that we can recharge uh gave me a chance to get caught up on uh, uh answering email questions that come in uh and comments that are posted to my video so i'm thankful lord that your um uh faithfulness is there that you are a god who can be trusted in relied upon and lord we thank you that you're keeping us safe despite all the disturbing news with the new uh omicron variant of virus that's uh uh, popping up everywhere around the world uh that's um possibly going to overtake the delta variant we pray that it doesn't happen but even if it does lord we know that you are a god who's still uh protecting us who's still watching over us as believers Indeed, your general benevolence is, is is um covering the entire globe. Whether people realize it or not, you are a God who um is protecting people far and wide, even those who aren't believers. Uh they don't realize that your kindness leads to repentance, uh like Paul talks about in the book of Romans. So thank you, Lord, that you are a God who is in control. You've not vacated the throne, you're not you're not ring up there, wringing your hands saying, What do I do? What do I do? Oh no, another variant, another another COVID variant, what am I gonna do? I wasn't I didn't see that one coming. No, Lord, you are in control. And we give you the credit for that. We give you the acknowledgement that you are the one who uh, is protecting us. So continue to strengthen us and raise us up as communities and continue to lead us and guide us and uh, help us to have the proper perspective uh, for all that's going on around us. And we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory. Bashim Yeshua. Amen.